Hello, Artie here, and welcome to something new we're trying out, which is our roundup of some of our favorite episodes from the last year, 2023. So over the holidays, and as this year comes to a close, we're releasing a Best of 2023 series. This is by no means objective and making plenty of tough decisions to leave a few favorites out, but also featuring some newly unlocked patron episodes that people have been asking for for a while. So we'll be releasing one every weekday for a total of 10, and we'll be back with the first episode of the new year on January 8th. In the meantime, we want to say thank you to all of our patrons. It means a lot to us that we're entirely independent. We don't do ads or sponsored content and are entirely listener supported. So your support goes directly to helping us make deeply researched episodes just like the ones you'll hear this week. And if you're listening to this and you're not a patron, you can support us at patreon.com slash deathpanelpod. As always, stay alive another week and see you all in the new year. The strategy of dissimulating, you know, by... Oh, we're just, this one's just journalism and it's, this one's about ethics. And this, this is actually just, it was already scheduled, you know, this constant sort of noise to sort of hide what's really going on misses the point, which is that once the piece is published in this world, it is going to do more damage than any of us could hope to fix by even getting a withdrawal or anything, you know, at this point, like the damage is done, no matter what anyone's feelings or opinions were on that. And if the Times doesn't know that, that's probably a greater condemnation of them than if they do. to the death panel patrons thank you so much for supporting the show we couldn't do any of this without you if you're listening to this and you're not a patron that is probably because we unlocked this episode if you'd like to support the show and get access to all of our weekly bonus episodes become a patron at patreon.com slash death panel pod and if you'd like to help us out a little bit more share the show with your friends post about your favorite episodes order a copy of health communism from your local bookstore or request it from your local library and follow us at deathpanel underscore. So today, Jules and I are joined by friend of the panel, Vicki Osterweil, to talk about a recent open letter to the New York Times sent by contributors, writers, and journalists who have worked with the paper in the past, expressing serious concerns about editorial bias in the newspaper's coverage of trans people and the resulting drama that has followed. Vicky is the author of the book In Defense of Looting, and she has been a writer and media worker for a very long time. She is currently working on her next book called The Extended Universe, coming in 2024 from Haymarket. Vicky, welcome back to the Death Panel. It is so great to have you back on the show. Oh my God, it's so nice to be here with you and, and Jules, even if the circumstances are um, as often unideal. I'm always, we're always finding ourselves in this position and having to apologize. You know, you come spend an hour with us having a lot of fun raging about the worst thing that you could possibly talk about right now. So yeah, exactly. That's the brand. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Gotta stay on brand. So all joking aside to just sort of set the stage for a moment, as we have been covering on Death Panel for a very long time. The New York Times has played a large role in laundering anti-trans narratives at the very same moment that the United States has seen an explosion of anti-trans legislation at the state level, especially for youths 
And conservatives have also openly stated that they are targeting kids because it is an easy argument against trans care in general and the first step in a larger goal of banning all transition care in the United States. Now, on the morning of Wednesday, February 15th, a group of New York Times contributors, writers and journalists sent an open letter to the paper's head of standards, Philip Corbett, calling out the paper for, quote, following the lead of far-right hate groups in presenting gender diversity as a new controversy warranting new punitive legislation. As the open letter notes, over 15,000 words of front-page Times coverage debating the propriety of medical care for trans children have been published in the last eight months alone. The bottom line here is that the Times has clearly staked a position that is harmful to trans people and is holding its coverage of trans medicalization to very different standards than other issues. And the response to the letter has been pretty hard to watch play out. It's also worth just stating, because accusations of bias are all around this issue and sometimes at the center of it, our coverage of the New York Times was actually cited in the letter, um, specifically an episode that we did with Jules before she was on the panel um, about a piece cited in the letter written by Emily Bazelon um, in June of 2022 that was both harmful and historically inaccurate. So just to start us off there, I can't even really begin to capture the full context of, of the situation in an, an, an opening um, frame like this, but we should lay out what the letter was, what some of the points that were made inside of it, and then we can get into things like the response after that, you know, from the newspaper managers and also from some of the usual suspects like Matt Iglesias, Jonathan Chait, Jesse Single et al. I think rather than let the haters have the first word here, you know, they've spent the last few days oscillating <laughs> between uh -huh. freaking out about journalistic ethos and then doubling down on anti-trans bullshit. So I think we should spend some time doubling down ourselves and lay out because it always bears repeating you know, what exactly some of the issues are with the New York Times coverage of trans people and trans medicalization specifically. You know, while the accusations of this open letter constitutes a bunch of freelance writers bullying a giant, hugely <laughs> powerful newspaper are categorically hilarious, like objectively funny. Personally, I think it's better to privilege the very valid critiques um, that are contained within this open letter before we engage with the sort of secondary and tertiary pundit brain bullshit that has reverberated and really drawn attention away from like what the actual critiques are. I think you mean tertiary B. Um, tertiary. Oh, sorry, exactly. this is terrible. You shouldn't have invited me. This is what happens. Such a good pun though. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, it's about ethics and medical journalism, you know? Um, oh. No, but uh, I mean, I, I don't really want to speak for too long because I think, you know, basically so much of my understanding comes from, you know, for example, that show, like the work y'all do here, Jules, your work is so important here. Um, but I think you know, that, that one of the things that's really, um, that, that I want to say about the letter is that it was really quite measured <laughs> and, um, and, yeah. and polite mm -hmm. and refuting, refuting points and asking for a lack, you know, for appealing to the New York Times' own standards, right? It was not, um, a sort of radical cri de corps, um, you know, but I think, I think Jules, I mean, if you don't mind me tossing the hot potato, I think you'll do a great job sort of summarizing that letter if you, if you're up for it. Sure, sure. I'm very happy to, um, and you know, I was happy to sign the letter as one of the now over, I think, 1,000 contributors yeah. to the New York Times. Um, you know, I've been both a source, you know, for a number of different stories um, over the years. I've also published an op-ed at the New York Times. So it's like, you know, the the context of the letter is actually professional, right? This is a letter put together by contributors, people who have worked 
with or for or written or published with the New York Times. And it's addressed to the standards editor, right? So it's an Mm -hmm. open letter, but it has a very particular um, professional context. This is a group of journalists and then other folks like myself who are sort of part-time journalists, but certainly contributors in a broader sense um, that are raising questions around you know, sort of the fairness of coverage and really questions about the practice and ethics or the craft of journalism, right? And so, you know, that's why the letter is really quite narrowly tailored in that way. It talks about the New York Times' own editorial guidelines, which in particular demand that reporters, quote, preserve a professional detachment free of any whiff of bias. Um, And, you know, also talks about the relationship with sources, you know, that, you know, journalists working at the Times are expected to remain, quote, sensitive, that personal relationships with news sources can erode into favoritism in fact or appearance. And so, you know, on that basis of the New York Times's own editorial standards, the letter raises a couple of concerns. And, you know, I think they're you know, there are broader concerns about, you know, sort of media coverage of trans healthcare, of trans kids, of trans people and trans politics. But obviously, the Times plays an outsized role in the media environment and has also generated a significant degree of controversy. And so the letter mentions, you know, for example, the article by Emily Bazelon, um, you know, which we've talked about on this show before. And, um, you know, where a lot of people who were interviewed as sources for that piece were really frustrated and uncomfortable with the result of it and the way that certain anti-trans groups were given a lot of airtime in that piece without like a lot of context about, you know, perhaps how their ideological drift and their junk science is informing things. There's also reference to Katie Baker's more recent feature, When Students Change Gender Identity and Parents Don't Know. Bum, bum, bum. (laughs) Um, You know, which just like the way it framed the ostensible events at hand was like quite misleading at times. Um, But then there's also, I think, you know, so there's this sort of specific kind of professional question about the quality, you know, of the journalistic work being undertaken at the Times. But then there's sort of a broader question that the the latter also asks, which is, you know, does it matter, for example, that right-wing politicians, governors, states attorney generals love citing New York Times articles, you know, both op-eds and journalistic feature pieces in support of really violent anti-trans legislation, including the banning of healthcare itself. Um, And so part of what's frustrating, obviously, is that the uptake of this work, it's not just the airing of ideas, right? It has already real-world impacts. Um, And also, you know, one of the challenges is that one of the critiques I think that people have brought to bear on this, you know, body of coverage is that it often ignores the larger political context. So you'll read this whole long article Uh, that makes a a really narrowly framed so-called debate between medical professionals and people who it turns out actually are part of like anti-trans groups. But that happens sort of in a narrative vacuum and you don't see all of the bills, the hundreds of bills targeting um, young people that like absolutely are even more moral panicked and out of control than any of the people, you know, presented in these sort of, you know, neutrally liberally written kind of like um articles right so there's there's that aspect and then finally i think the other thing that this letter brings up that's really powerful um is a little bit of historical context 
is this the first time the New York Times has been like <laughs> subject to these kinds of criticisms? Absolutely not. Um, and, you know, two areas that the letter goes into that I think are so clarifying first, right, is the like truly decades long push that it took to get the New York Times to stop covering gay people with just like the most terrible homophobic, you know, <laughs> veneer of objectivity, the New York Times's long-standing penchant for speaking only of homosexuals and homosexuality, which just, you know, led to a lot of really awful, kind of very similar articles that we're seeing now about trans people. And then also the New York Times coverage about AIDS uh, and, you know, it's, you know, platforming of people like William F. Buckley, you know, who famously published an op-ed um, arguing that people with HIV or AIDS should be forcibly tattooed on their arm and on their ass. And that was published in the New York Times. So it's like, huh. I mean, you know, I think there's a narrowness that's like really nicely concrete here because we're dealing with like the question of how journalism broadly participates in and produces moral panic, circulates disinformation, disavows its own political roles. But the the way that the letter, you know, sort of like follows a through line, I think is really powerful from actual questions about specific pieces to the way that the Times is utilized by one side of a political struggle disproportionately. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, this sort of larger context of, well, this isn't just something that the Times has had to face, you know, about trans people or trans issues. This is a broader question, you know, about journalistic accountability and professional practice and standards, right? And so I think that that's the way I would characterize it. And then the last thing maybe I would say, you know, I know this is a long summary of the letter, but I think it's fabulous. You know, I've seen a few people talk about this this week. I know for a lot of us, you know, who have been out there, you know, doing public advocacy work, who do writing and research in this area, also who just are trans, we felt very exhausted, very isolated at times. It's been very challenging to feel like we have solidarity and support um, from people who don't necessarily have personal skin in the game. And there is just something about scrolling through the signatories, like, wow, yeah. you know, just to yeah. see people mm -hmm. come out, like, this is a powerful demonstration of solidarity from journalists, artists, culture makers, writers, uh, you know, novelists, like people who are, you know, a part of the community and contribute to the institution of the New York Times, really adopting this kind of, you know, critical posture and these series of asks um, for the New York Times to do better and respond to these issues in a substantial way. I just want to say, I think that that's something that's actually like new in a positive sense for me. I just, it's been a while since I felt this kind of like, ah, oh, look at all the people who agree and all of the people who are willing to put their name and sign on to something like this. So I just also want to say, I think that that's a wonderful, a wonderful reflection of how significant and substantial and tangible um, these critiques are. It's not just sort of like, um, anyways, it's, you know, all of the the hand wringing and pearl clutching over these, we're just bullying them and we're so mm -hmm. mean because, you know, we're so powerful, <laughs> us who are having our healthcare banned and taken away and losing all of our civil rights and are subject to more interpersonal political violence than we've ever been in the last several decades. Yeah, you know, us, the super powerful trans people. Um, it's wonderful to see a broad range of trans and non-trans people signing on to this letter. But that's my sort of long form. I feel like my explanation of the letter is longer 
than the actual <laughs> letters. So thank you for indulging me, but you know, no, can't help no. but editorialize. I think it's also important to to just like really quickly underline one point that you made, Jules, which is like, okay, on one side, you have these pieces of coverage that the New York Times is like, we're very proud of. These this is fair and balanced reporting. We're avoiding bias here, mm-hmm. right? And the Basla and Peace in particular, I'm thinking of, right? Which is really kind of framed as like this very typical story we see that's geared towards a kind of white middle class um, parent that's concerned about, you know, the kind of health uh, impacts and sort of virality of different like social contagions. It's like Mm. the nightly news viewer who's who's pulled in by the here's the codes that kids are using to text each other about sex. You know, like it's that kind of target audience. Right. And to see, okay, so we've got this piece and, you know, we're being called out because, um, you know, people we spoke to for the people the reporter spoke to are unhappy with how their research was portrayed in the piece. Thinking of Beans Velosi here, like, mm-hmm. you know, beyond that, I have heard from like many other people who spoke to Bazelon who would prefer to remain unnamed, who also were in the exact same position as Beans and heard my interview with Beans and reached out to say, off the record, me too. And it was so frustrating. And it made me reconsider mm. ever speaking to the New York Times again as a source, right? And to then have a letter with a thousand contributors and over 20,000 subscribers, media workers, <sighs> readers of the New York Times mm-hmm. signing on in solidarity, weighted against the fact that then you are reporting that you're so proud of and say it's so fair and balanced is being cited by conservative Republicans in state law battles to try and retrench any sort of protections that trans kids have in school, whether that's like a bathroom bill or being able to sort of have privacy from sort of a state surveillance of of, and counting of like sort of how many trans kids are are popping up like Texas is doing. Right. It's this kind of like absolutely ridiculous comparison if you actually lay out on the table you know, what the two sides of sort of use value and critique are and to think that their response could be, no, no, we're very proud of this reporting. Yeah. And and I think that's really great. And, and Jules, yeah, I also, I found myself scrolling those names multiple times. I also experienced that that way, um, you know, of sort of like, oh, wow, okay, this like feels a little better. And, you know, um, uh, coming from sort of a personal position on some of this, like I, I tend to not do as much of the turf beat as, as other people do. Um, you know, there's only so much mental health capacity I have. And and I tend to sort of not always follow these things. But um, for me, like, I I think I can point to some stuff that's sort of more direct and more personal and and, but third sort of third, second or third hand um, that speaks to how this happens structurally. Right. So um, this Mm. the second article um, that is mentioned, Katie Baker's feature um, about, you know, students changing their gender identity, which really spends a lot of time talking to parents who are just Mm -hmm. very concerned and upset that they didn't know that their trans kids were trans, you know, and they, the school didn't tell them it didn't have like a, you know, a moral obligation to, to report on it. And I've heard, you know, from, from people who are, who are close to the process of that story, that that story was in production for months and it started, um, as I understand it as a story about the Alliance defending freedom, the ADF, Mm. the like big right wing, you know, fascistic, you know, anti LGBT hate group uh, Mm -hmm. from the Christian right that funds the parents who are talked to. And again, this is, you know, this is third hand, but, but I, I feel confident enough to share it saying that like the editorial process on that piece over time pulled all of that out. Right. 
pulled out all of the context saying, you know, these parents are funded and organized by the right, you know, and eventually we get this piece that literally just gives their worldview, right? Without any reference to the context of who they are, where they're coming from, you know, and then the Times then, as you're saying, B defends it on the grounds of journalism, you know? Oh, well, we talked to all these people. There was so much journalism when in fact, like, you know, and again, this is my understanding, but it, 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 you know, it jibes with other stuff I've experienced, you know, being edited by, by publications I've never written for the times, but, and, and other people's experience as well, that what's actually happening, you know, the way the sausage is actually getting made is that it is being all mm. of this political context that the letter criticizes them for having like i mean i don't know about the case with Bazelons, but but it seems like with you know katie baker's piece they literally took that out that that was sort of how it started you know and it, this doesn't matter the point isn't to the point isn't to talk about you know whether whatever katie baker as a writer or the piece as a as a thing i think but the point is to show that there's this editorial process that is using the cover of journalistic objectivity to actually remove information Mm-hmm. That would allow people to understand how these processes are actually working. And, you know, I don't think it's a mistake that in this same moment, Ron DeSantis, it's discovered, has requested the medical records of trans students in, in Florida, mm-hmm. which is horrifying, mm-hmm. you know. And, and, and there's no way that people, um, you know, parents couldn't read this piece and say, well, it makes sense to me, you know, because the parents should know. You know, mm-hmm. they don't, the kids are away at college. They should have a right to know. And it's dangerous and they'll make permanent changes or whatever <laughs> it is. Um, but I think the other thing, even if you don't, you know, love my sort of third hand, you know, heard about it from editors and other writers um, stuff. If you wonder what the Times perspective on it is, right. The day after this letter was sent and Glad sent their letter as well, they ran a massive piece defending J.K. Rowling Mm -hmm. and saying that her anti-trans stuff is over over reported on and it's misunderstood. You know, I mean, J.K. Rowling, as anyone who listens to the panel or indeed exists on the Internet knows over the last three years, has completely come clean about the fact that she is a a raving, you know, uh, anti-trans maniac, basically, you know, Um, and as a maniac, you know, I'm upset to hear that that there would be one who's so bad like that. But you know what I mean? Like, She's she's really clear about her politics. So to have that come out the day after the letter, and again, um, New York Times editors on Twitter defended that as like, oh, you know, this piece was in production for a long time. Well, there's a phrase. It's called stop the presses. <laughs> it is so common for editors to change the content of their newspaper in order to meet a particular moment because it's important that they do that, that there is a common cultural image of that, right? Um, there is no way. I mean, you know, again, this is speculation and like, I am not, you know, but, but I, I would be shocked if there wasn't an editorial meeting at the times where they talked about whether they should publish the Rowling piece in the face of this letter. I don't mm-hmm. know if they did that for sure, but, but you know, all of these things and the, the point of bringing up all of these, this is sort of nitty gritty inside baseball, how the sausage gets made, some other cliche that you also enjoy about this. Um, but like, the reason that we get into that is actually not in order to talk about the specific pieces, but to talk about how each specific instance can have pretty particular formal journalistic excuses made around it, you know? Um, mm-hmm. But the aggregate does in fact reveal a clear position and a clear opinion. And the 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 strategy of dissimulating, you know, by Oh, we're just, this one's just journalism and it's, this one's about ethics. And this, this is actually just, it was already scheduled, you know, this constant sort of noise 
um, you know, thanks, you know, Jonathan Chait, all these people, you know, make to sort of hide what's really going on. And even sometimes people on the left arguing about whether such and such a writer is, you know, a transphobe or whatever misses the point, which is that once the piece is published in this world, it is going to do more damage than any of us could hope to fix by even getting a withdrawal or anything, you know, at this point, like the damage is done no matter what anyone's feelings or opinions were on that. And the Times, you know, if the Times doesn't know that, that's probably a greater condemnation of them than if they do, right? But they know their role as political operators, I imagine. And it doesn't really matter because the point is that there is this way in which journalism you know, with a capital J and truth with a capital T um, and, you know, non-bias gets used to build this huge smokescreen that requires people like me and Jules who, you know, I mean, I don't want to speak for you, Jules, but like, you know, I'm exhausted enough, you know, dealing with this in my daily life, mm-hmm. you know, and then we have to go in and like learn these little intricate details and like sound mm-hmm. sort of paranoid or like, you know, like, like conspiratorial. And so again, like, uh, like Jules was saying, one of the things that's so powerful about the letter for me um, is precisely the feeling that like, oh, wow, okay, like this is finally, like this is not working. This smokescreen really isn't working. Mm-hmm. Look at all of these people who don't buy mm-hmm. it anymore, you know? And I think like, you know, I mean, not to whatever, big up y'all too much, but I do love your show and, and listen all the time. And like, you know, Aww. I think the work that you do and the work that 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 um, folks like, like you know, um, Tom Skoka, who wrote the piece about the 15,000 words the and 15, did all that research. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All, all these people, all this work, it's starting to have an effect. And I think mm. part of why I wanted to, you know, I wanted to come on today, not just because I just had in the hot gossip, you know, but I also wanted to come <laughs> on today because, um, because I, I do see that like it didn't work for the Republicans in the midterms. It wasn't an effective electoral strategy. And so if it starts to fail also as an ideological strategy in the long term, that does give me some hope, even though in the short term, here we are having this conversation again, you know, mm-hmm. and, and that's really frustrating. No, that's such so, a good point. It's such a good point. And, it, you know, I think that that, you know, just for a little more context, as we're having this conversation, some things, you know, to keep in mind, you know, there is this open letter from contributors, right? And part of that has to do with the, you know, the strange experience for those of us. It's not just that we are trans and like, hey, guess who's thought more about this than um, pundits <laughs> who have just taken up this beat because it's, you know, it Couldn't gets clicks. Be. Yeah, Couldn't and be it generates, trans people. No. Right. I mean, I think there are interesting questions. <laughs> oh, but it's so profitable. It's so profitable to talk about. That's why we do it. Yeah. Well, you know, it's, <laughs> y'all, y'all are just on the take from Big Pharma, Big Estrogen. Oh yeah, Big Estrogen. Yeah. Oh, don't get me started yeah. about her. But yeah, you know, seriously. part of part of what was so frustrating, you know, in the response, in the initial response from the New York Times, was first, you know, there was um, a statement from Charlie Stotlander, director of external communication, which just actually made a factual error. Um, you know, it conflated this open letter from New York Times contributors with the letter from Glad, which, you know, both letter, you know, both, both groups writing letters were aware of each other, but like, they're not, it's not the same letter. They weren't coordinating. Glad did not deliver the contributor's letter to the Times, but the Times statement um, from Statlander like says that <laughs> that's what happened, which is just as a matter of fact, untrue. Right. And, but the reason that the statement 
makes that claim is then to go on to say that, quote, GLAD's advocacy mission and the Times journalism mission are different. And there's this immediate wedge being driven in the response, um, which is a wedge that's also picked up in an internal memo from the New York Times sent to its staff, right, which also advised them that they absolutely cannot participate in criticizing the, the, the paper and they can't participate in any protest or organizing so it's also this like, you know, um, anti-worker, you know, sort of labor intervention, you know, which touches on ongoing issues at the Times, but this sort of attempt to drive a wedge immediately, right? And, and argue that the edifice of journalistic objectivity is what distinguishes the Times um, from trans people who are contaminated and biased by their predilection for mm-hmm. advocacy. So the fact that we would like, for example you know, access to, to the health care that we already have or that we, um, you know, prefer to be treated with basic human dignity and respect and we don't like to be lied about, misrepresented. We don't enjoy, you know, wild conspiracy theories, misinformation and libel about us as people being circulated in papers of record. All of that, you know, all of our um, expertise is delegitimized as as reducing it to advocacy, which the Times, which is really, you know, again, this is a very smart strategy because it allows the Times to turn its professional deficit, its lack of trans people in the newsroom, its lack of its lack of interest in hearing from trans experts and turn that into a positive value. Oh no, actually we are objective because we don't we don't. We only publish, you know, non-trans people's takes on this, mm-hmm. right? Um, and you know that I think is really, you know, kind of at the crux of where, you know, what you were saying, Vicky, brings us back to this structural dilemma, right? It's like I, you know, I'm tired all the time. I'll always be tired. Um, but you know, it's like I'm not mad at individual journalists. Honestly, I don't care what their motivations are. Mm-hmm. Honestly, like I really don't even. I'm not personally mad at Pamela Paul or Jonathan Che. I mean, I could be <laughs> mad at them, but like that's not the site of my critique, right? Um, it's not that I want their speech silenced or I want them, you know, this or that, right? It's actually a structural, impersonal question about the role of journalism and journalistic ethics and the sort of structural role that the Times is playing in magnifying a certain story about trans people that is one on its face incorrect, right? Like every time I read these different stories, you know, as someone who is an expert in the history of trans youth's uh, relationship in medicine, I just always see actual errors like that. These assertions, these foundational, oh, trans kids didn't start, you know, transitioning until 1990s or the only reference point for this is this Dutch clinic. Those are incorrect (laughs) assertions, you know, and I happen to have written a long peer reviewed book about this that, you know, I I have that also the Times is quite aware of. Right. Like because I've been interviewed Mm -hmm. about it. I published an op ed based on it. Right. So it's like there is this sort of structural problem. Right. It's not so much like each individual story is really the thing that um, people are criticizing. And of course, I think that's why. Um, this sort of reactionary kind of closing ranks here has tried to construe everything as sort of hysterical reaction to individual stories and got sort of mucked, you know, kind of bogged down in the mud of that rather than understanding that this is a much broader context. And if you're, you know, presenting a misleading story 90% of the time and then 10% of the time will publish 
you know, decent pieces, right? Like it's been interesting to watch mm-hmm. the occasional well-written piece get published recently. And and it's like, that's great. But, you know, sometimes it's also very concerning. Like, you know, Jamel Bowie had that like excellent op-ed and that had the word trans in the title. And then like a week later, they removed the word trans from the title. <laughs> like they mm-hmm. literally detransed the headline. <laughs> um, and so it's like, okay. Or like they hired, you know, David French, you know, as a columnist who's like sort of known as rapidly, you know, like, you know, almost evangelically anti-trans and then like didn't renew the contract of Jennifer Finney Boylan, who is a trans woman and an incredibly accomplished, you know, writer um, who like has a book on the, you know, bestsellers list at the moment, you know, at the time. So it's like there are these larger decisions that in the aggregate have impacts and that those impacts are the impacts that people are calling attention to. Oh, regardless of any individual journalist's work or, you know, regardless of any individual story, there is a broader um, unfolding that has also, we can track over time, right? The anti-trans bills have Mm -hmm. gotten worse. They have proliferated. We are sitting here in the middle of February and we have more anti-LGBT and anti-trans bills proposed in this first, you know, six or seven weeks of the year then we had all of last year, and last year was already a record-setting year. We're at over 300 pieces of legislation. And so if the paper is contributing to an environment where there's an accelerated targeting of a vulnerable minority, and it's not even incorporating that aspect into its own coverage, well, then that 90-10 or whatever that number really looks like is bias. Um, And so like, Mm -hmm. you know, mobilizing journalistic objectivity and saying that the only people who are biased are trans people is just on its face absurd. Um, But it's also absurd in the context of this letter, because when you go and look at the list of signatories, we have broad based support. It's not a bunch of trans people who just got together and said, hi, we're trans people who are mad about how the New York Times writes about us, right? It, I mean, which would have been fine that, but that's a different form of advocacy, right? This is a bunch of professionals, some of whom are trans, but many of whom are not, who have serious questions about the political bias built in structurally to this institution in a broader media environment where people are being endangered. And so that's where something like the Pamela Paul piece for me, right, I'm, I'm neutral on like the JK Rowling industrial complex of like hot takes and pieces like whatever, you know, (laughs) But of course, you know, it's interesting that a defense of her would be published, first of all, in the wake of the the killing of a trans teenage girl yes. in the UK, you yes. know, in an environment yes. deliberately stoked and funded, you know, philanthropically by JK Rowling, but also people were watching on Twitter this past week, the way that Rowling, who is a billionaire, let us all remind ourselves, is, you know, able to make use of the United Kingdom's particularly low standard um, of proof for libel in order to basically go after, you know, people with very small followings on social media, threaten them with a lawsuit, and then get them to recant and apologize to J.K. Rowling personally for, say, you know, raising the question of her links to far-right groups that have open sympathies with um, contemporary Nazis, right? And it's like, okay, so what is danger, right? The danger that, you know, Pamela Paul contends, again, it's like we can debunk it in the context of her article, but in the larger media environment, it's like, who's really in danger here? You know, a trans kid was just killed in the UK. um, And JK Rowling is also like, you know, effectively utilizing her wealth 
to silence her critics. So hold on a second. And then the New York Times is considering that as a vulnerability that shows that trans people have gone too far. I mean, hold on, right? When we zoom out and look at that, then I think it's (laughs) pretty clear what's going on. Exactly. Yeah. And like as the unhinged anarchist with um, less professional worries, um, I can sort of say (laughs) that like it looks pretty clear from my vantage point that um, J.K. Rowling has responded to the murder of yes. uh, uh, um, mm. in the UK by making sure sympathetic coverage is happening to downplay her potential role in it. Mm. Um, and, you know, that is um, purely a theory of mine and is not a fact. And I am not claiming that is true, um, dear lawyers who are listening. But, um, you know, I think also like, that's exactly right. That that the reason I brought up the Pamela Paul piece, um, although I, you know, um, what is it, vented some spleen about Rowling uh, as I did it. But the reason I brought it up was precisely because of the way it functions structurally in the moment, right? Mm-hmm. And like, yes. this is the sort of thing that, um, that you know, you're pointing out so well, Jules, I, I exactly agree with that there's this this way in which journalism gets used as a, as a shield for um, a certain kind of very, very obvious political action, right? Mm-hmm. And, you know, I... I I sort of made a joke about it earlier, but I kind of want to bring it up, but please feel free to like cut this if it's not really relevant. But like, um, you know, in, in, in 2014, like, I don't know if people, I mean, I'm, you know, I'm an old, I've been doing this stuff for a while. Like if people remember Gamergate, Mm -hmm. like, which, which is widely recognized as having given birth to the alt-right, um, Gamergate successfully, um, managed to maintain cover for itself for months and months by just yelling over and over again. It's about games journalism. It's about ethics and journalism. Mm -hmm. That was a slightly different case because it was sort of a bottom up, you know, internet troll thing. But like, as someone who was writing sometimes about video games at that time, I watched journalists who I liked, you know, games journalists sort of both sides it because mm-hmm. they just insisted on the existence of journalism as they went on to destroy the careers of trans and queer and people, women of color in the game space, you know? And it took years for, for games journalism to recover from the damage done. And I, I don't know that it really even has, frankly. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And obviously, the um, you know worse than games journalism, that was how much of the alt-right found each other, right? And like, so stuff like this that feels maybe a little like nitpicky or, or small, these cultural moments... Like they grow, they bloom, they turn into in the street political or or it doesn't need to be in the street. I don't want to make that hierarchy, but they turn into like real political movements. And I think that's what the letter does so well, as we've said, is like you can see. And as Jules, you've pointed out all of these bills, the way that this stuff snowballs, but it all snowballs on this grounds, this very, very tenuous grounds of we're just doing journalist objectivity. You know, mm-hmm. we're just doing journalism. We're just covering both sides. Look, there's a debate happening in public and we're just reprinting the facts of the debate, you know, and you see you, you and then, you know, you spend your time saying those aren't the real facts of the debate and you get angry and they just keep doing it. And then eventually, like, it doesn't matter anymore because the power that has been put in motion um, has enough overwhelming popular strength and enough um, structural and institutional legitimacy that, you know, you can cite it in a bill, um, you know, in a Congress for people who, again, this is, you know, politicians tend to be some of the least well-informed people you'll ever meet. Um, their aides <laughs> often know things, but um, politicians are often, you know, they, because they are handling so many subjects, um, they are often uh, know very little about any of the things that they're legislating on, right? And so, like, being able to have a dossier of New York Times and The Atlantic and, you know, whoever whoever else, you know, um, articles saying, look, here are all these parents who are concerned. 
And it doesn't point to the political foundations of that or who's funding those parents or why those parents in particular are being talked to or as the letter points out, or as Tom Skoka points out, the hundreds of parents who are happy with their, you know, the, the vast majority of parents who, you know, like their kids and are happy that they're <laughs> thriving, right? Like, those parents don't get front page stories. Um, and so, like, you know, it, it's it's how... Um, it's it's we're watching a sort of red scare, you know, kind of uh, style of political, a fascist political campaign be built through these institutions um, that that hide behind a kind of liberal evocation of truth um, mm-hmm. and and objectivity. Well, and also just to sort of bring in this quote from uh, Joe Livingstone in Hellgate, um, New York, which is a great little independent publication. Um, She's one of the people who was sort of involved in um, some of the original drafting of this. She said, quote, I think that the Times has used the deniability of we're just reporting the news to kind of protect itself from itself. I believe that there are editors at the New York Times who believe that they are covering this issue properly, that it is in the public interest to present both sides. I think one of the really key points that I want people to feel hits home is that there's no real separation between the way that we use language and the idea of neutrally covering a subject. To suggest that there is no relationship between the way that we are using language at the newspaper to discuss people's lives, people who are also being debated in court, is to really be willfully ignorant of what it is that we do as journalists. And I feel like that is so much part of this framing, both in the way that the New York Times response um deliberately collapsed this letter that has a you know very specific professional context, as you were saying, Jules, into the same thing as the letter that was sent by GLAAD, which again is explicitly an advocacy organization. Then they kind of framed the inappropriateness of people even signing on to the letter um, professionally within the context of the fact that like they were translating and collapsing the professional letter into the one with glad by saying, and, and you know, it's like breaching standards to mm-hmm. uh, engage in advocacy and that you sort of sacrifice <laughs> this um, precious neutrality that, you know, is sort of the only reason that, that you're valuable as, <laughs> as a contributor to this paper. Right. You know, and so this kind of idea of like both the role of like speech and language and who it comes from being so specific, coupled with the fact that we also know that one of the things that they're being explicitly called out for is sort of de-identifying sources Uh, within mm -hmm, the context of mm -hmm. coverage of transmedicalization in particular. And, you know, as someone who has recently done more writing with more mainstream publications, like the, to, to get something sort of through with that little context, to de-identify someone that way. That doesn't like happen by accident. More often than not, if you misaccurate, if you, you know, misattribute someone's association, like you're gonna be in like a five to six email long chain of like fact checking, making mm-hmm. sure that you're getting like the right framing of that person. So to sort of then be doing also this very shady, kind of two-faced way of responding to the critique in the first place after being called out for this very shady two-faced way of sort of privileging one view and painting it as neutral, um, while also saying essentially in, in sort of all the public framing of this that the, their their language and reporting has no power. It, it's just um, yeah. yeah, like pick one, motherfuckers. Exactly. You can't have it all. I'm sorry. <laughs> like, and I think, Vicky, you're right that like, you know, them being aware of this is is really you know probably the more likely situation but if they were somehow unaware of how bad this looked 
that that would be even more embarrassing because it's that obvious at this point. Right. Yeah. And I think that like one of the things that's really important to remember here um, about the way that their power operates, right, is that is that when people hear the phrase, the New York Times, they imagine that level of fact checking. Right. Yes. They imagine yeah. that level of professional seriousness and of and of facticity. And, um, you know, you know, and, and, you know, sometimes I feel exhausted. I'm like, oh, my God, like, it's so frustrating that that they have managed to maintain, you know, this this sense that what they are doing is really rigorously fact checking and reporting. And it's not just them. It's 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 what few legacy media outlets remain with any influence, which is, you know, fewer and fewer every year. Um and the way that they get, you know, sort of opposed to someone like Fox News or even MSNBC, right? It's like, mm-hmm. oh, well, those, you know, those are advocacy channels, whatever, whatever. But like, you know, the New York Times is, is you know, it's the gray lady, you know, all the news, you know, it's, it's, it's this, there's, there's real standards there. And I think it's really important to note that like, that those standards exist for much of the paper, and that's mm-hmm. part of how it works too, as you're pointing to, like, as you said, you know, uh, B, like, you know, that, that, you know, you get fact checked like that, like that's true. Most of the time that's what happens. And so that, you know, we saw this again, not to pull it back again, but you know, during 2016, 2017, when they were covering the alt-right, um, and they were sort of talking about, you know, the dapper young gentleman, I don't think that was the times that was someone else, but you know, like, and they were sort of interviewing these people without talking about their associations, without talking about their history. And they were just sort of like, these are just, you know, concerned young men who are like active on, you know, the, the, the far right. And they like care about this stuff. And like the way that that coverage gets given to far right positions and is never, never afforded to left positions. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, is not the point exactly, but it, uh, it is, it is, it is really important to point out that, one of the ways that the liberal journalistic ethics functions is that right-wing reactionary um, advocacy is not advocacy, but left-wing advocacy is a political opinion, is a position. Yeah. Mm-hmm. No, it's 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 exactly right. You know, it's like I, you know, I was remembering and I often, you know, think about the fact-checking that went into my New York Times op-ed, which was published like two-ish years ago now, you know, which was an op-ed based on the peer-reviewed research I'd already done to write my book, right? So it was like very easy for me to be fact-checked because I was like, oh, don't worry, I've already been peer-reviewed. I like have all of the archival receipts, but it was like very extensive, let me say. Like I'm yeah. like, you know, showing, you know, primary sources to my editor, right? And like happy to do so because, you know, that really matters to me that the work that I do is empirical, right? It's historical, it is based in reality. Um, and I have evidence, you know, upon evidence to, you know, but that, that, that obviously isn't happening to the same extent, um, when really crucial pieces of information, um, and context are omitted or just absolutely mischaracterized bordering on untrue statements are published, you know, regularly Mm -hmm. that something like all of us who do this work for a living, you know, would be able to very easily correct if we were the fact checkers. And, and so I wonder if, you know, this is a, a sort of a place to to dig in and think a little bit about what the sort of broader impact and issue is here, because it seems to me that there's like sort of two aspects of impact, right? That are that are sort of the the bigger context in which this particular criticism of the New York Times has been um, has been leveled this past week, and so one of them is, you know, over 
um, trans kids themselves, the breaking off of, of children and youth as sort of a specific lens through which we're supposed to apprehend either only this very narrow, tortured, supposed debate um, or difficult decisions that adults are having to make happening in a vacuum. Um, and then like to restore that context, right, what it actually is. And then the larger question to me is about moral panic and medicalization, the reduction of trans people mm -hmm. to a medical question, right? And that is like bedrock um, anti-trans position, right? Like to say that trans people themselves don't exist but for medical transition. That slippage, right, um, is very, very common. But the, but the first part really quickly, I think we could just kind of get out of the way, right? Which is that all of, you know, and, and, and you know, I, I'm not telling people to go read Jonathan Chait's piece in New York Magazine, but if you want to read it, you know, um, <laughs> It's called Fight the Anti-Trans Backlash with Accountability, Not Silence. And so, you know, among the sort of ways that he comes to the defense of the times, although it's weirdly, you know, through the lens of talking about the Tavistock Clinic in the UK, it's all, it's a, it's a jumble of a piece, but, you know, basically, <laughs> right. Um, it's such a mess. Yeah. Thank you well, both the for reading that. I did not have the stomach. Uh, I really appreciate it. Perfectly <laughs> fine. I'm happy to summarize, but, you know, the, the, the larger point, which is not one that Chait alone will make, you'll see. Jesse Single, um, Andrew Sullivan, I saw making it as well. Of mm -hmm. course, many right-wing pundits will make it with much more exaggerated rhetoric. But the point is that there's something peculiar and specific about trans kids transitioning, period, or or because it's getting harder and harder to make that point, um, that somehow trans kids were invented two years ago by doctors, or um, <laughs> the more respectable version uh, is that like, well there's maybe just too many kids transitioning or it's happening too fast. There's not enough, you know, gatekeeping standing in the way, which, you know, any trans person could tell you is <laughs> the most, you know, anxious, defensive kind of misrepresentation or inversion of reality possible, right? But all of this is premised yeah. on the idea that there's something unique and legitimate about isolating children and young people. And the larger politi political context of the past year you know, completely gives lie to that assertion. And that has to do with the fact that all of this legislative push to ban, criminalize, and administratively um, defund or destroy gender-affirming care for young people is now being followed up immediately as predicted, as also admitted by some of the right-wing interest groups um, driving this push, those bans are now being pushed up into adulthood, right? We saw bills starting within Oklahoma attempting, you know, bans on gender affirming care up to the age of 25 or 26. And, you know, it's very clear that it's not actually about kids, right? That ostensible um, rationalization or justification is demonstrably untrue because the same arguments are now being used to say that, you know, actually we shouldn't allow, you know, gender affirming care ever. And some right wing <laughs> pundits, you know, are calling for, you know, people who provide that care to be jailed, right, or worse, um, you know, like that's more like a Candace Owens or a Matt Walsh sort of talking point. But in any case, right, the idea that there's something unique to kids here is falsifiable, you know, on its own merits, right? Like, again, I'm always happy to be like, um, trans kids have existed for a long time and have been transitioning for a long time. It didn't just start with the Dutch clinic. And the fact that you're interpreting a small relaxation of access as a sudden 
um, explosion in young people actually transitioning is really an assertion with no evidence. And, you know, lots of other sort of debunking people who kind of can do that, you know, really professionally, almost in their sleep, have pointed out how much these assertions that there's something about kids particularly relies on all of these obviously untenable anecdotes about all these sorts of wild ideas about what's going on at gender clinics and all these kids basically being pressured and forced into hormones Mm -hmm. and surgeries just like absolutely the most like made up thing i mean just is (laughs) you know satanic panic again like oh yeah a friend of a friend of mine told me this wild story that is kind of hard to believe but yeah it's because it's not verifiable it didn't happen right um and so there's that aspect of it, right? But it's I, also like, it's like if sat- if Satanic Panic met Welfare Queen, because like, exactly. Satanic Panic didn't mm-hmm. have policy consequences yeah. the way certain other myths had. So it's kind of like in a, in a terrible sense, like combining two of our worst tendencies in the United States. Right. Yeah. And, but, and, but I think, you know, I think there's an argument to be made around the sort of Satanic Panic stuff, not yeah. to, you know like, and around um, what was going on in that, like, that's also happening at the same time as the AIDS crisis, and at the same time as a sort of generalized pedophile crisis. Mm -hmm. And it did lead to stuff like parks having policies about Mm -hmm. adults not being allowed to be near them around minors. Mm -hmm. And, you know, like, I agree with you completely, B, that the, the, the connection between the policy and the moral panic right now is much more intense and obvious than it was during Satanic Panic. Um, I agree that Welfare Queens, in terms of that, is, is a much better comparison. But I think, you know, um, and, and as uh, Sophie Sophie Lewis says, like, you know, like that cis people have been getting gender affirming surgeries and hormone treatments for centuries. Um, mm-hmm. You know, they said they wrote about how their mom was on gender affirming hormone treatments. Um, you know, most cis women who go through menopause will be afforded the opportunity to take mm-hmm. estrogen. Right. Um Another, uh, you know, um, fact about sort of this sort of myth of the of the sort of gender clinic being so magical, um, if a cis man has is having intense testicular pain, he can sort of walk into a clinic and be like, it's, it's rare. He's like, look, you got to take these off. Like he can get an orchiectomy, right? He can just he can have yeah. them or his his testicles removed if they're causing a lot of pain. But if a trans femme wants to do it, you know, there are these crazy obstacles to that, you know, and if you were to know that and go in and just say, you know, like, just pretend to be a cis guy and get it out, like you can get it done faster, right? So mm-hmm. the idea that, you know, as you're as you've, you know, so well pointed out, Jules, that like that this is, um, this is this broad, this this sudden explosion of access. It's like it's a fantasy, it and is. it's a fantasy on the part of the of the um, of the reactionaries because I think they are terrified the of the reality that their that their gender identity is actually is actually that simply constructed. Yeah. So they project the fantasy in this reverse way where it's like kids are just confused and they're peer pressured and you know they played too much doom so they shot up columbine and their friends smoked weed and now they're addicted to crack whatever the myth is, you know. It's sort of this like this this projection of their own anxiety about how easy it would be for this system to crumble, right? right. Um in an individual's life because ultimately it is just a series of ideological ideas maintained by cultural and state power, right? Um yeah. And so I think like, you know, to, to broaden out again a bit, and I, I know I'm all over the place here and I apologize for that, but like to broaden out again, like, you know, 
the fact that this is happening in the same moment as the Roe v. Wade and the abortion bans are coming into place is like absolutely, and so many people have pointed this out, but is like absolutely part of what's going on too, which is a generalized attack on bodily autonomy. And one thing that I think people aren't necessarily speaking to, I think, is the way that that attack on bodily, except for death panel, because y'all are fabulous and I'm so honored to be here. You guys like help me think this. It's it's so hard to like be on this podcast and not just listen to you two and be like, uh-huh, uh-huh. Like I'm at home listening to death panel, but like, no, I have to talk. I actually have to talk. Um, But yeah, um, I think that like it's connected to the bodily autonomy of the pandemic, right? That like that bodily Mm, autonomy has become an active biopolitical weapon. And more than that, and this is a thing that is my particular, you know, uh, hobby horse, I guess. It's a response to the 2020 uprisings. And Mm -hmm. the 2020 (laughs) uprisings made it basically impossible to talk about race in the way that white supremacists would like to you know, mm-hmm. um, and the loss of Trump and the sort of the collapse of his coalition and the failure of J6, like, and, and even them, even Trump already, like they were switching towards Q, they were sort of obscuring their yeah. open racialist, you know, remarks already, um, because of the, because of the flavor. And so I think like what, what is happening here is that attacks on bodily autonomy via trans children, um, via gestators right to abort, um, and via the right of the disabled or the immunocompromised, or just those who don't want to be sick, to not get sick. Mm-hmm. The attacks on those three vectors have proven a much more successful wedge ideologically than attacking the movement head on, right? And so like there's this interesting moment as I see it I think and again this is very pie in the sky but like where we are the counter revolution against the you know the abolitionist uprising of 2020 has largely looked like attacks on the bodily autonomy of queers, children and um you know people with uh, ovaries and people who are disabled. And I think that that's, again, you know, I'm a ranting paranoid, whatever, if you want to say that. But like, I think like, I I think that the way that all of these things are connected and the way that the load bearing thing here is so often like this really silly debate about whether someone's sources are real or whatever, like the (laughs) the silly journalist debate, how like, if you just sort of pull on that thread, like suddenly you're talking about or at least I am, suddenly I'm talking about, um, you know, like police precincts on fire um, and how this is how liberals are responding to that and putting trying to put that cat back in the bag. It's maybe that's just a provocation for someone else to think about. I certainly, you know, it's just something on my mind. But I think the way all this stuff gets interconnected through biopolitics and through the mm-hmm. pandemic and through trans issues and through um, bodily autonomy issues in general, like I think that's been this amazing contribution that y'all at Death Panel have made to, to my understanding of the world. Um, but I also like it's really important to connect all these things so that we don't get stuck in you know arguing about whether such and such a journalist is a transphobe or whatever they might be they might not it doesn't matter exactly yeah like who cares right the result is the same those words are out there in the world and they will be used to socially reproduce things that are gonna like result in furthering this agenda so it really doesn't matter where they're Mm. coming from like who gives a shit no it's not important right but that logic of policing that you were alluding to vicky i think we can Mm -hmm. see it again so much of the work that I think, um, you know, we've had to do is just like connecting dots. It's just drawing horizontal lines, right? So if the Ron DeSantis administration in Florida would like to collect data on teenage girls' menstruation in the context of school sports, right? Well, one way to grease the wheels of that very, you know, alarming intrusion um, of the state. And frankly, 
super creepy and like yes. like predatory, right? Obviously, yeah. But it's yeah. creepy Very and predatory. Gross Christian. Yeah, right, but right alongside collecting data on trans kids, like that, it, it is it is a vice versa situation, right? It's the same yeah. thing where you know, in the uh, rhetorical defense of the gutting of AP African American studies, right? DeSantis will say, "Well, we have to get rid of this content because it includes." queer theory, right? I mean, the, the interchangeability mm-hmm. here is not just convenient. It's about how state power generalizes a kind of policing or, you know, the thing that I, you know, will occasionally call like the cisgender state, the state trying to become cisgender. It wants to create a kind of gender police structure and carceral structure, right? That like, you know, it makes um, extreme bans on abortion work much better. They're the same legal arguments, right? Like the Dobbs decision has been used mm-hmm. Um, by state's attorney general in Alabama, you know, to argue in federal court for the applicability of bans on gender affirming care, because if there's no right to abortion in the deeply rooted in the nation's history, as Justice Alito put it, then there can be no right to, to gender transition deeply rooted in the nation's history. These are the mm-hmm. same struggles. But of course, the way that they're sliced and diced in terms of coverage, right, refuses to draw those links. And that I think, right, again, is where we, the structural point of view can actually get us out of the weeds, right? Not just, yeah. of, you know, speculating on the motives of particular journalists or editors, because, yeah, I don't think that that's important at all, but also getting out of the weeds of just debunking misinformation all the time, which, like, I, you know, we've become really good at as a kind of critical culture, but I think debunking has somewhat... I mean, there has to be a time and a place for it, right? And so I, I'm wondering if the kind of other big plank here, I think like we've, you know, we, we've done a good job sort of tackling why the, the concern trolling over childhood is a ruse. But I think the broader issue for me that remains unaddressed and that drawing these horizontal lines would address, right? is the continued moral panic around trans healthcare per se as a way of collapsing trans people's lives into a matter of medicine. That is a form Mm -hmm. of political domination historically. Like that is what the entire history of trans medicine as a field is about. And trans people's memories and ongoing experiences with medicine is that um, subjecting us to the authority of diagnosis and actually the, the panicked, but like liberal, ostensibly gender affirming expansion of biocertification processes to determine mm-hmm. the correct kinds of trans people, right? This is where a lot of the hand wringing actually comes down to is that pundits are pretending that, you know, the biocertification process isn't rigorous enough, right? Um, mm-hmm. And that somehow then that leads to an epidemic of regret that doesn't exist. Um, but but the real root problem there for me is not that just that that's factually incorrect and we can debunk it, but that it's in proper to reduce trans people as a group of people to medicine and medical transition. It's an error. Like it's also a moral and political failure to do that. And that is partly what I think the kind of um, proliferation of coverage at the times has been incredibly weak at understanding because when it, you know, um, portrays people as advocates or, or to activists or too political as too critical, right? It's mm. um, assuming, again, that all of those people are angry only because they depend on medical gatekeepers for their own existence. Like, that's implied, right? And it's just, I find that incredibly offensive as a trans person, but also as, like, a professional trans person, I can say, you know, quite competently that 
is just made up. Like that, that's not like, I don't see any evidence for any trans people ever really acting that way, like historically. Um, and it really sidesteps really substantial questions about the critiques of medicalization to begin with, right? Like this is the problem that I feel like, you know, is part of the challenge that we face trying to be more sophisticated, critical and mobilizing in solidarity and in coalition in this moment, because let's face it also like, shit is bad. Like we have been losing a lot of these battles. I think yeah. like the battle for public opinion is actually like in some ways rosier than just the brute, like legal legislative administrative battle. But like in any case, right, there is this way that we've kind of been forced to double down on and reinforce the naturalization of medical authority as like a defensive posture against all this attack, which is actually just not helpful. And then like gender affirming care, right, which is like this really modest but important significant, you know, shift in the practice of, of medicine um, is actually being weaponized against us, which just goes to show that like institutional medicine has never been trans people's ally. Like they're not our allies. And like, we know yeah. this, we would like to be critiquing medicine and challenging medicalization and pathologization to begin with, but everything is getting so, you know, misconstrued on purpose, right. To sort of flank us from both sides so that then we have to end up arguing on behalf of the very medical system that primarily harms us. Right. And that, and also that like, most people just don't even have access to, which just makes it a moot point, right? And so I think there's this larger question for me about like um, what it would take for the New York Times or other journalistic outlets to actually pay attention to the real empirical context of what's going on and not reproduce like the original anti-trans point and, and assumption, right? Which is that trans people yeah. are correlate to medicine. And I think that that happens in such, you know, we, we have pointed this out on this show before you did be, but like that incredible <laughs> moment where the times publish, like when the times now publishes culture pieces about trans people that have nothing to do with medicine. Cause guess what? We do more than go to mm -hmm. doctors. Right. So there is that profile of, of your know, little puss press that it's salon system, like love shout out to all the beauties that yes. little puss press. We love you babes. Um, right. And like that piece, right, written by Heron Walker, also love you, hello, Heron, um, you know, like that, that when you click on that and you're reading it on the Times website, the, the sidebar will pop up and be like, do you want to read these pieces about top surgery? And it's like, hey, you're doing it right now. You can't even have an arts and culture piece about a literary salon that is trans because you somehow that has to be about like gender affirming care, it, it, it stretches the imagination to the point of absurdity. But I think that's such a good example of how the structural coverage here is itself um, misinformation, right? It is misinformation mm. to confine mm -hmm. trans people to healthcare and reassert us as a product of a debate within healthcare. That is a form of harm, right? Because trans people are so incredibly harmed by, by this healthcare system that we have. And it's also preempting a series of questions that, hey, get us to questions about, yeah, solidarity with critical disability politics and, you know, questions about, you know, the eugenic legacies and ongoing eugenic policies of U.S. healthcare, of the private insurance system, all of these things that actually implicate everyone, right? And that, I think, it's just so telling that what we're being also held back from having is a more robust conversation about what do trans people know about medicalization that actually everyone might want to know, right? And then also what are 
are the legitimate problems trans people have with healthcare that we're unable to deal with when our healthcare is being taken away because we have to go into emergency defense mode. So, you know, that I think is the other side of it. It's not just that confining trans coverage to children is disingenuous. It's that confining it to medicine is disingenuous. That is the play Mm -hmm. that the right-wing anti-trans you know, politicians and groups like the Alliance Defending Freedom are following. They might have an evangelical or moral import to their crusading, but they will always, always, always reduce trans people to healthcare because they think the state should be able to regulate people's survival through the regulation of healthcare. And that is the fundamental mm-hmm. setup that you yes. would never, ever have any prompt to consider reading mainstream media coverage. Sorry, that was a very long yeah. rant. Yeah, and and the, no, 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 it's, so no, it's good, so, Jules. It's so good. Yeah, and like, I think like you know, um, one of the things I liked about the letter, you know, bringing up the the um, history of coverage of of gay people at the times. Yeah. But you know, if if you if you look at the history of the medicalization, um, first in first in psych wards, right, and then uh-huh. in you know in a variety of other clinics of you know, as the Times likes to call them, homosexuals, Mm. Um, like, and how, how recent it is, right? How it's only been 25 years since that really started to break down as like a, as like a, and it still emerges, it still reemerges, but it like, it isn't really very strong. So it's recent on a historical scale, but it's long enough ago that all of the journalists doing the exact same thing about trans people that was done about gay people, right? And to different extents, communists and people of color often, right? Mm -hmm. Like the way that all of that stuff gets recycled as a strategy, a structural strategy to sow division, to like break out, you know, to, 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 to keep people marginalized, to keep people struggling within a certain level. Um, my friend Mia Wong, um, who hosts, it could happen here. It's a different podcast. Mm -hmm. Um, she has this, this framing that I really like, um, where she talks about, um, how, there's this, they're attempting to build this like wall of gender bureaucrats, right? Yes. And when you said policing jewels, um, you know, I, you know, what, what police really are is armed bureaucrats. They're mm-hmm. officers with guns, right? And like, so there is this attempt to use these gender bureaucrats and this bureaucracy and this medicalization and to pretend that that's what's really at stake. And mm-hmm. whether or not, whether or not you take the liberal side of it, which is like, that's what's at stake. So it should be really available for everyone, right? Medical right. You know, transition for all, or you take the, obviously the, 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 you know, New York, the, the fasci approach, whatever, um, like what you end up doing either way is you empower the bureaucrats, you empower the gender bureaucrats, you empower the policing function of the state. I'm just repeating what you said, cause it was so brilliant. And I just, you know, and I've learned everything <laughs> I know about it from you. So whatever, but like, I, I just like, I think, you know, it, it's, the way that that moves through so many different topics and the way that, as you're saying, we have to draw horizontal lines between these things, mm. it, it really matters not because of debunking it, not because um, just because of the way it damages real trans lives and, you know, and the lives of, of me and the people I love and makes it really stressful to even like go out into the world, you know, like, like beyond all of that stuff, although that's of vital importance to me and I think is really, really core. But like it also, it works to collapse all these other categories that don't, you know, that pretend not to be touched by transness. And of course there are trans people of all different kinds, but like, it's like, no, no, it's about trans children is like a way of, as you're saying, like, you know, and, and we've been talking about hitting to striking and controlling 
people across, you know, prisoners controlling, mm-hmm. you know, um, uh, disabled people, you know, who, you know, you name it, the use of a particular marginalized group that you can produce a moral panic around. If you produce mm-hmm. a moral panic around a particular marginalized group and you get enough momentum around it, you can use it to validate the power of the state. And that's why in the wake historically, and again, this is just, you know, this is my bailiwick, but like in the wake of uprisings and revolutionary moments, you see these intense focuses on particular groups that are susceptible to this kind of moral panic for whatever reason. Um, and it's, it's played out over and over again. And it's really exhausting. Well, and it's also not random. Too. Exactly. And, yes. and yes. you're not, Precisely. and what Vicky's saying is not conspiratorial. This is one of those instances where, you know, it's not conspiracy, it's hegemony. Like, if you actually go back mm-hmm. to, oh, God, I can't believe I'm going to do this right now. <laughs> like, let's talk about Rawls for a second. Let's talk let's about. Let's do it. Let's do let's, it, baby. Come let's on, talk teacher. Early, early liberalism and the idea of how one becomes a citizen, which is through social participation, effective mm-hmm. social participation, pro-social participation, economic participation, and sort of pulling your weight in society. And this is ultimately like the foundation of a lot of our political economy, which is which is why I think it's helpful to go back to, because it explains some of the thinking as to why, you know, someone like Jesse Singlem might earnestly insist, I care about trans kids. I'm just really worried we're pushing medicalization on them and they can't handle that. And then go on to make the claims that he makes that are so fucking damaging to those kids that he thinks he has in his best interest. One explanation is relying on a kind of individualistic narrative of society that says, well, Jesse Single is a tarf and an asshole. And that's true. (laughs) But but it's not the point. Yeah. What's also true. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. Even if it's not true, it doesn't change the effect. Right. That's exactly exactly. And when we start to think about the kind of Rawlsian liberalist idea of how society manages like all of the disagreement that occurs because people are never going to be on the same page. And this is really foundational to his work. He talks about the need for shared ideas and the need for commonalities and how really in in spite of all this tumultuous and and discordant disagreement that occurs naturally within society there are overlapping commonalities that in times of stress turbulence and and crisis that will bring people together and help restore control and stability to society and help them move forward and continue and perpetuate and not sort of collapse and fall into decadence such as Rome, right? Like kind of the classically homosexual city state framework of like, you know, like, oh God, dear God, they just got so decadent. Like couldn't possibly have anything to do with like a massively bloated imperialist scheme, you know, that didn't quite match up. My favorite, my favorite, my favorite really hot take is that um, any critique of decadence is structurally queer phobic. Okay, go on. I love that. (laughs) But you know, and it's it's like these whole ideas, right, um, are, are what predicate things like, well, disabled people can't be part of society because they cannot be normal functioning um, social participants. And this is the foundation for people like Peter Singer, who proposed something called a left Darwinism. Yeah. And it's through these kinds of ideas that we see things like, 
We've got to slash Social Security and Medicare to save the deficit or else we're going to be bankrupting tomorrow's children. Like, isn't it so interesting that we're in this moment where we're facing looming austerity, discussion of cuts to entitlements, Mm. you know, discussion of the validity of trans children translated through a discussion of access to health care, essentially translating, as you're saying, Jules, the the individual trans person into a medicalized subject, you know, solely through this kind of process of, of granting permission to become trans via this kind of public consensus process, which is really what people like Jesse Single are calling for when they're saying, well, I'm just asking questions. We're just trying to present both sides here so we can all come to a consensus as to whether or not trans people deserve to exist. And in the meantime, we can create unity and sustain the stability of our Rawlsian liberal society through just asking questions together, no matter what it does to trans people. Because let's be honest, and this is where the kind of overlap of you know, trans, uh, the medicalization of trans identity and mental health labels really comes in, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. You know, maybe those trans people, we don't really have to worry about what they're saying because, you know, those people, they, you know, it's increasingly hard to 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 separate between whether a child is trans or mentally ill. Right. So, you know, it's questionable whether that person is or can even be a citizen in the first place. So if you're Rawls-pilled, like <laughs> these fuckers are, who believe that liberalism is good and that the public consensus always bends towards, I don't know, like justice and, and multifamily housing units or some fucking yimby <laughs> bullshit, you know, like th- if that is your view of the world, then to you, it doesn't really matter what trans people have yeah. to say about your public discourse about their validity to exist because what you're doing and asking questions is sustaining the future of society and maintaining our liberal democratic values. And that's why these motherfuckers are so dangerous, Yeah, right? They will do anything for that goal because they think society depends on fucking over trans people right now. And yeah, and I thank you, B. I I, I love that, and like yeah. I think that's that's so right on. And you know, I know that I sort of got you know I, I have a tendency to get a little polemical um, as I speak. Um, but you know, I sort of said you know if you look back at different times, you know there'll be different groups, and and you know, but it's also not random in a way that I think you know, and I don't remember who said this, and I'm so sorry. Um, maybe you will, Jules or or B. Um, that you know that um, transitioning is a kind of self abolition. That there is a direct correlation between a kind of abolitionist imaginary and um, transition, and it and if you medicalize it, right? If you mm-hmm. medicalize it, not only do you manage to you know keep them under the control of the bureaucrats, but you take away precisely that sort of um, the social power of transition to upset the way that gender structures our daily lives. It's it's kind of a basic trans liberation point on some ways, but I think it's like worth pointing to here that like that like. When you reduce things to to medicalization, what you're also doing is you're taking all of that, all of the actual challenging content in transness, which challenges the way that patriarchy and cis-heteropatriarchy shapes society, shapes productivity, shapes ability, right? Like 
that that can be challenged in individuals' lives. And, and I imagine all of you have seen it happen when someone transitions, like how it changes the way the people around them think and talk, mm -hmm. um, if they're thoughtful people anyway, you know? And I think like that that is the that is part of the threat to society presented by trans people. And I say like, yes, we do threaten society. Like we are going to abolish your society. And like, so the Rawlsian de defense of, you know, of the public sphere that you so, I think, elegantly pointed at, pointed to there be like, is also a defense of a certain kind of order, a gendered patriarchal order that is like, that is maintained through the clinic. Yep. Mm -hmm. Yep. And I, you know, I, I'm so down for this conversation and it makes me want to maybe, ooh, turn the screw just once on Jonathan Chait here because, you know, I've yes. had that piece open yes, while we've been talking. And just to talk about, I think, I think there's a real challenge here and it's one that I am, I feel privileged and lucky to be in solidarity with everyone, you know, in the death panel community, trying to think through, I think a real problem we have, which is the United States has a sentimental political culture. It has a particular, you know, mm. affective or emotional genre through which we're allowed to make political claims, through which we're allowed to experience and name suffering and violence. And it has, it's premised on its own genre, which is to say it has its own structures of expectation, its own norms, its own disciplines. It's really hard to talk in this moment about the impact on trans people um, precisely because we're only ever invited to double down on a certain spectacular and sentimental kind of violence, right? So it's like everything about all of this legislation has to redound on the kids that will die um, or the people who will commit suicide. And the problem with that, too, is that, you know, anti-trans forces will also, you know, libidinally, which is to say, with glee and emotional investment and frankly erotic investment double down on and dilate you know those those um forms those measures of suffering and immiseration in ways that are very disturbing um but i think that like we have uh, this task and we're as we're making these kinds of pivots that both you know and Vicky were both just talking about to figure out how also to transform our rhetoric and our grammar to break free of that sort of sentimental tradition that says that suffering is what gives you deservingness to do anything mm -hmm. in life. That's what the old gatekeeping model of trans healthcare that all these pundits apparently think is so much safer would do, right? It was standard practice to practice conversion therapy on trans kids first to try and stop them, try and get them to give up being trans because they're kids, because we imagine kids are more uh, vulnerable to intervention and can be changed. That was standard operating practice until this gender-affirming pediatric model that came about in the 2000s. So decades and decades of institutionalized abuse of children as the normal predicate to getting them permission for social transition or hormones or down-the-line surgery. That was standard operating procedure. It's I saw it hundreds and hundreds of times, you know, while researching my book. That is horrifying, right? And so then we get to these moments, like there's this one moment in the Chait piece, okay, and, you know, where Chait says, you know, is 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 concerned <laughs> um, about transmasculine youths, um, you know, uh, access to gender affirming care. So Chait writes, 
um, you know, quotes a, Re- a Reuters piece that adolescents assigned female at birth initiate tr- initiate transgender care 2.5 to 7.1 times more frequently than those assigned male at birth. Oh, that's according to WPATH. Okay. And then Chait says, this is taking place in the context of a mental health crisis that is disproportionately affecting <laughs> girls and LGBTQ plus teens. Properly assessing kids who question their gender is much more challenging when they are afflicted with serious mental health challenges. And so medical providers are diagnosing and treating kids much faster than before at a time when the patient population has become much harder to diagnose. Now, on the surface, there is a lot of reaction to that paragraph. It's incredibly vicious and victim blaming, of course, implying, but not saying, and this is like a wonderful pundit, you know, mode of writing that, oh, well, you know, trans boys aren't really trans. They're actually, um, you know, depressed or mentally ill girls. Um, And so therefore we're doing something wrong. But when you go behind that kind of, um, you know, awful, ableist, you know, medicalized kind of, um, you know, precept. There's actually a story behind this because there, you know, this report did come out from the CDC. It's Youth Risk Behavior Survey that had some pretty stunning data, right? That over the last 10 years, um, you know, young people, particularly young girls, are experiencing sky high rates of depression and suicidality. Um, suicidal ideation, experiencing an extreme um, degree um, of sexual assault and other kinds of, you know, really, you know, difficult life events, right? And, you know, we can get into the weeds about like survey data and blah, blah, blah in another time. But one little piece of this story that I think is really telling, and that actually is a place to dig in and not contribute sort of to the spectacularization of suffering or the idea that the only legitimate claim we have um, is like saving ourselves from dying, you know, is that Florida um, is so upset at this data showing how much, you know, young people in Florida are suffering in schools, right? Like school-aged children are being asked these questions. And in Florida, like the data was really, really, really like awful. It just showed that um, more than 40%, for example, you know, of Orlando County high school students said that they felt sad and hopeless and 20% have had, you know, suicidal ideation. So what what did Florida decide to do? What did the DeSantis state decide to do? It's going to withdraw from that survey. So it it, it will no longer send data about how um, (laughs) immiserated its young people are because of state policy. It will just stop doing that. And so it's going to, you know, remove it. And I think that's a really like there, you know, again, is this like opportunity to dive in and not like come in with our own sort of sentimental or moralized or spectacular race to the bottom kind of like, you know, ultimately liberal kind of like politics is just to save the children, right? Um, But actually to say that there's a lot at stake in targeting and immiserating children. We have, we know that, you know, the impact of that is real and there's even work to cover up that impact. Therefore, we need to make a shift. We need to figure out like, what is the modality that can outflank all of this, right? Outflank the Jonathan Chait, you know, really kind of callous implication that's not spelled out, but also outflank the Florida Department of Education simply, you know, covering up and removing data, right? Like we're moving into this era where a lot of our primary crises, right? You know, and this is why this conversation about media is so important, where a lot of our 
crises are going to be intentionally dataless. This is going to be the future of the COVID pandemic where we will just like have no data on what's happening ever. <laughs> um, people are just being left on their own. And in the same way, the impacts of these kinds of legislative moves and this, you know, whole pundit class and this journalistic, you know, sphere are not going to be incredibly obvious to everyone. But I think the point, right, is that we need to take that as our opportunity to shift the terms and to think about what is effective in this moment, what actually are the kinds of stories we want to tell about why trans people matter, why access to transition matters, you know, and what happens when we reject this sort of sense that we have to establish our deservingness before we're allowed to have a seat at the table, uh, and where we sort of claim agency, you know, and claim expertise and claim solidarity and claim coalition in ways that can actually be effective in, you know, in the sense that we're going to find ourselves in an even more information poor environment in the sense that disinformation and also like intentionally, you know, manipulated circumstances and terrain for this struggle are already ongoing for years. And I just think that this kind of like the way that like the suffering of young people and like suicidality and, you know, depression are being weaponized in this moment. What more cue do we need? Like to just be like enough with this nonsense, like let's, we're not going to be a part of this absolutely, you know, rigged kind of conversation that makes no sense. It is really, really cruel and callous. Like we're not going to try and mirror that energy in order to somehow like rise above it. Right. We need to be smarter, I think, than that. Um, but I just, I really, it's just, it's just astonishing when you look at like the degree to which people are willing to go, right? As far as, well, we're just not going to participate in the CDC survey anymore at all um, in I, order to like bury the story of what's actually going on. Well, then great. What's actually the story that we want to tell? That, that I, I'll be really quick on this, but like Jules, that clicked so much into place for me. That mm -hmm. was, that was so amazing the way that you, you framed that, like, which is that like, I think if you look at sort of the the 2010s um, or even the Bush administration, frankly, like the the building of the surveillance state, yeah. there was this um, equation of more data with better outcomes, right? Yeah. It's this classic neoliberal. It's the fantasy of the of management consultants, right? We're going to go in, we're going to monitor your workforce, we're going to get enough information to tell you which 10,000 people to lay off, right? Whatever. Um, and like the, there was sort of this drive for more and more information. And then we get to the Trump years and like the information is like, oh, things are really bad and no one likes it. Yeah. And, then, and so now, you know, like now the Biden administration with the pandemic and but also, you know, what you're pointing to now, there's this like, OK, OK, got to start. Stop having this data. Like the data is too. We can't even massage this data into the lies we want to anymore. So we just have to get rid of it. And. Obviously, that's a scary precedent. That's a scary moment. It's obviously a fascistic impulse, right? Um, but it also is telling about how precarious their ideological hold on the moment actually is, right? Mm. Like, liberalism is really, really weak and has been for a really long time. And the the regime of truth that is often held up by people like the Times or the Washington Post or the Democratic Party um, has been tottering for a while. And we are witnessing with the pandemic, um, I think especially, but also with, with these trans issues, the way in which um, the attempt to... Uh, there's no money. They can't just throw more data at it. We have the data. Um, the data is people want to overthrow the government and destroy all the police stations. Like we know the data. Um, we don't like the data. So we have to like take this new tack, which is sort of like, as you're pointing to, like this really affective appeal to the moral 
um, you know, safety and and uh, and and emotional safety of children who are growing up in a world that they know is going to end before they reach their sixth decade if things continue the way they are climate wise. It's 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 this you know it's this mass. You know, on some level, like I think a lot of so much right wing politics these days, and this is going to this is real, you know, wing nut stuff. So thank you for having me on to, to spout my nonsense. Um, so much right wing right wing uh, work these days on data and stuff is ultimately climate change denial. Right. Because the Damocles mm. sword hanging over all of these issues is like the utter unsustainability of the society. Right. And so you have this like sort of this this deep level of the way that climate change denial has structured so much of other political denials, I think is really interesting. The way that like taking away the data, covering your ears, pretending there's a debate, saying the science isn't clear yet on all that stuff, like how core that has become as an ideological move by both the right and liberals, you know, um, I think is really telling. And I think you just framed it in this way, Jules, that just has my mind spinning. So thank you. Well, thank you. Always aim to spin minds. (laughs) (laughs) You know, when we think about when we think about kind of like at its core, what is being debated, Mm -hmm. you know, I'm like what I guess I'm like fixated on at the moment is kind of like, how do we identify the core dynamics in such a way that it doesn't just call people out? For example, for the sake of sort of identifying them as bad actors, but in Mm. a way that shows the problem such that we can start to identify responses to that that are commensurate to like what the actual problem is like how do we sort of push through the very i'm not and i'm not trying to like downplay the importance of critiques pointing out bad actors because obviously that's really important to understanding how this all works but being able to sort of push through and say okay so one of the core problems here and I think this is especially evident in this kind of focus on children in particular, right? And mm-hmm. I think it's connected to the very long battle about climate change education for public school kids. I think it's connected to the more recent battles over educational liberties that connect things like anti-CRT advocacy and anti-vax and mask advocacy, Mm -hmm. and yet they're portrayed as bifurcated separate issues with different constituencies and different levels of credibility by the press, despite the fact that it's like the same groups of people doing this kind of organizing. And part of the reason why I feel like kids in particular even in this deficit language of like, well, we have to make sure to like control costs and 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 impose austerity to protect the kids, right? Like <laughs> right. this this sort of idea of like, well, what is education for in our society, right? Like it's for transforming individuals into citizens. That's like a, a pretty famous, um, or at least not famous, because you can't say anything within disability studies is famous. <laughs> There's like such a small. So um, Nirmala uh, Aravelis wrote this piece called Immaterial Citizens, Cognitive Disability, Race and the Politics of Citizenship, which Mm. is in a lot of ways about um, education and intellectual disability and what our political economy sort of allows for on the basis of how we perceive the ability to transform 
someone with an intellectual disability label or diagnosis into from that individual uh, medicalized subject into the citizen, into that earning producing unit. And so relative to an understanding of, of how possible that transformation is, which is obviously highly subjective and comes from a very particular positionality and sort of viewpoint, that that kind of then dictates the education that that person is then allowed to access within the school system. Mm -hmm. And so like the education is understood relative to that, its ability to affect that transformation and sort of beyond being able Mm -hmm. to do that, like we don't have a lot of ways of talking about education as being effective um, for, you know, intrinsic reasons, or we don't talk about like learning as being just a good thing Mm -hmm. (laughs) that makes people happy. We talk about it as like increasing our, our value as, as workers, right? Um, and so I think part of what's what's really going on here is what's ultimately being debated is one, I think there is a, a fear of transness as a contagion, very much the way that disability is feared as a mm. contagion, whether it has anything to do with the contagious nature or not, you know, people are you know, there's so much historical documentation. If you if you study disability studies and you start to look at things like, you know, the ways that people have been afraid of um, catching like, you know, an amputation or, you know, they're afraid of blindness. And there's a kind of, you know, fear that these certain subjects will both explode and that these subjects cannot explode exponentially like a virus, but that these subjects cannot be effectively reclaimed for the state of citizens. And so it's both like a foreclosing on this identity category and it's also a kind of subjecting it to the principles of like health securitization and the idea that the state has a right to be all the fuck up in your business because it's not about you anymore. It's about the public safety. It's about the nation, right? So like when we're talking about what's going on when trans kids are denied access to a bathroom based on a state law, when what is in a library is surveilled by a a state governor, when, you know, we're seeing these kinds of debate in in the public sphere, I think one of the problems is that this kind of affective register of saying, okay, like, this is causing misery, it doesn't actually answer that question that they're pushing, which is, can capitalism claim trans people the way that it wants to? And they don't fundamentally believe you know, that capitalism can or wants to. I think I'm just thinking back, Jules, to like our conversation around the case where ADA was used with a diagnosis of gender dysphoria. And I'm thinking back to all the discussions we were having about why explicitly transness was excluded from the ADA, not just once, but like with four different diagnostic categories among a list of other things like pedophilia and pyromania and you know, um, alcoholism, et cetera. So sort of like uh, even among all these like things that were sort of classified already as moral hazards, like why did transness get a double down in that respect? And part of it was that there was this moment where the bill was being debated, where also at the same time, the bill, uh, the Americans with Disabilities Act was framed as a way to force people to employ trans people if trans people were included as a protected identity category under disability. And so, yes, part of the conversation around, you know, 
trans kids and and controlling the population of trans kids is like about the misery, but it's also about our ideas about how workers are made. Yeah. It's about social reproduction and like what the state expects families to do in terms of producing future generations of citizens, of people ready to be turned into citizens. And I think it reflects an anxiety that, you know, we're producing too many people who can't be reclaimed for capitalism. Um. And, you know, Vicky, as you're saying, sort of embracing the dangerousness, right, of that kind of relationship in the same way that I'm thinking of how in health communism already in our like, you know, people are really afraid that socialized medicine could lead to communism. Like, maybe we should stop sort of denying it. I think this is also one of those moments where if we're like talking about cost when it comes to healthcare proposals and we're talking about, you know, is socialized medicine a slippery slope? Like, we're never going to have the right conversation, you know? And I think part of what people like Chait do is they keep us in that register where on both an affective level, you know, in terms of emotion, like where we're forced to put our attention and energy emotionally. Mm -hmm. And then in terms of where we have to put our attention and energy intellectually to refute the horrible things they're doing emotionally takes time away from ever being able to think about what that actual problem is, because it's like you can't do all of it. We only have so many hours in the day and everybody's very busy trying to survive. So yeah. it's it's not the first thing anyone thinks of today. Like, let me think past all of the problems laid out on the table to try and think of like, how do we move forward, not just on the back foot, not just in response, but how do we make a kind of affirmative push past some of the things that that we're going to still have to keep fighting, but to sort of expand the political imaginary for what we get to talk about when these things come into the news, because I can't imagine it's like super fun to have to like repeat yourself as much as you have had to in the last couple of years, Jules. <laughs> and thank you for doing it so much. Yes. Yeah, it's been, <laughs> like so, it's, it's been so like helpful. Thank you so much. But there it's is super a, but, there's, but there's good news on the other side, right? That's what yeah. I hear both of you saying so elegantly and so forcefully. And I really really strongly believe that. Um, and and in fact, that feeling on my part has only grown stronger in the past few years. Like we are being mm. forced into a reckoning, but it's also a reckoning that has upshots, right? And once we abandon being stuck always in reaction to our tormentors, to our would-be superintendents also, and cast off, right? That hegemony of the mind where, you know, part of you, of course, feels afraid or, you know, feels ruled, right? If only framed out by pundits or, uh, you know, the JK Rowling that lives in your head, right? Who isn't coincident with the real person. Like these are, these are processes that we can come through, through political organizing, through critical study, through the intimacy and solidarity of something like, say, death panel, right? And through doing politics. And I think that the good news for me, right? And this is why I, you know, feel proud to be a historian in this moment. It's not just to debunk that, oh, well, you know, trans kids like have been around a long time. It's not just that they have been around a long time. It's how they've been yes. around. Like, I'll, I'll, you know, I know this is peak jewels, but if I can tell a short <laughs> story from the past, I was just thinking yes. about, I was just thinking about this because I had 
the happy occasion of reading um, this new book, uh, Kids on the Street, which is about to come out from Duke University Press by one of my colleagues um, at Johns Hopkins, Joseph Plaster, who's a historian, archivist, just wrote this stunning, stunning like book um, that really takes serious the role of center cities, tenderloins, and these kinds of neighborhoods where, you know, queer and trans people who have had to run away from home, really usually because of abuse, you know, of so many kinds and rejection, have found one another and have built, because, you know, Joseph really takes this very seriously, built robust, you know, a robust um, moral economy. They figured out a way to take care of one another, a logic of, if you watch my back, I'll watch your back, and actually built family and, you know, advocacy structures and had sort of a thriving economy of mutual aid that, you know, we don't want to romanticize it, but it was robust and it was serving people in a certain way, right? And so here you have people who have experienced some of the worst you know, sort of ravages of American society um, who are not simply impacted by that, but of course, by necessity and survival, turn around and create a thriving, you know, alternative moral economy, kinship structure, um, and a kind of vibrant world, say, on the streets of San Francisco's Tenderloin. And it's really amazing, you know, in, to watch how long ago some of the dilemmas we're still living out are formed. And this is my kind of gambit in telling this story, is that in the 1960s, you know, before Stonewall, we're in the era where the only gay rights organizations are homophile, right? Um, and homophile, right. like this sort of interesting 1950s version of kind of very respectable gay politics that maybe under the surface are much more interesting, like Harry Hay, one of the founders of, you know, homophile organizations in LA was like an avowed communist and yeah so it's like complicated stuff worth checking out but there's this moment in the mid-60s where the homophile organizations in san francisco are like we want to consolidate the political power of gay people gay people there's a lot of them in san francisco we should have some power to flex and this is the moment of lyndon b johnson's great society liberalism right so the idea of expanding the state right is at its maximum um, you know, relative to where we are today. And you see this, you know, homophile organization come up with an idea. Oh, let's create a homosexual halfway house, right? So it's like one of these moments where the idea of the halfway house is being invented. And they're like, we're going to open one in the tenderloin and we'll use it to reform street kids, right? To get them off the street, to make them respectable, to get them to give up their silly adolescent rebellions. Um, and we'll try and get them <laughs> ready basically to dress more appropriately, to get jobs and to become respectable. And they're very clear when they're outlining this program that the reason they want to do that is it's sort of proof of concept that gay people deserve to be treated as a voting block in San Francisco. So they right. want to get access to federal funds and also exercise a a greater degree of political power at the municipal level in San Francisco. So they're adopting this great society idea that like the poor have to be put to work, maximum input and effort on behalf of poor people to ameliorate their own conditions. So you build infrastructure, but you demand that they do all of these things, right? They have to try as hard as possible to lift themselves up, um, even if they're being you know, in this imagination helped out by, you know, philanthropically. And it was just one of these incredible moments for me where I was like, oh, 
the whole purpose of respectable gay politics, queer politics all along has been like, what if we um, get rid of the, you know, unrespectable, you know, kids yeah. on the street, the trans fans, <laughs> the sex workers, the people who use right. drugs? What if we just sell them all out? Then we'll finally be welcomed into the American political establishment because our political power will be on the basis of property rights. It'll be about cleaning up the streets. It'll be about getting people into employment. It'll be about dressing more conservatively. It's like, it's already there in the 60s. And one thing I think we can look back and say now, all these decades later is, what the fuck did that ever get us? Is American society any less homophobic now than it was in the 1960s? I don't really think so in the ways that matter. And like, has achieving gay marriage and property rights protected LGBT people from any of these attacks in the past few years? Absolutely not. And so how many times have we sold out the people you know, who already are being marginalized at the bottom of our social hierarchy. But then here's the pivot point, right? And those street kids, those trans girls on the street, you know, those people who built those mutual aid economies, they know so much about how we could live differently. They had to figure that out. Again, I don't mean to romanticize it. It's not a ready-made political program, but like they know so much about how else we could structure the world instead of in this losing battle for recognition on the narrowest grounds possible that frankly hasn't paid off very well because if you go to San Francisco today, it's the same populations of people who are still not being served. They've been sort of moved around geographically, mm -hmm. but it's still, you know, trans women on the street. It's yeah. still, you know, people yeah. who use drugs. It's still unhoused people like hello we're still like stuck in this merry-go-round that's been running now for decades upon decades and i think the good news side of that though is not like always to me is like hey we're very swallowed up here in the 21st century but what's going on right now is not like unknowably different than struggles that were started yes. 50, 60, 70 years ago. So why don't we start counting on that knowledge, that expertise? It's harder, right? It hasn't been lifted up. It hasn't been systematized. It hasn't mm -hmm. been turned into nonprofits. It's not what goes into museums. It's not what's taught, you know, in, in school. It's barely even what's taught, you know, at the um, higher ed level. So yeah, it takes more work, but we have all of these resources, all of these repertoires of knowledge and expertise that can serve us in this moment. When we are called to this reckoning, we are not walking into it with, um, you know, without any idea of how we got here. We have all of that information. We've just been misled into thinking it doesn't exist. And also, if we accept the terms of how we're talked about in the New York Times, we'll never arrive at that conversation. But it's our conversation to have if we can responsibly figure it out and learn from those people and, you know, think with them and think about, you know, who those comrades are in our ranks today. Like, we have all of that. So I just think, like, that to me is always the good news, right? It's like, you know, we actually don't have to become, like, policy wonks. Like, thank goodness. <laughs> and also, like, I, I will say, I think I'm lifting this from, from someone else on the internet. So thank you to whoever this was. Thank goodness we do not live inside an Aaron Sorkin TV drama, right? Like our problem is not to get <laughs> right that one weird trick rhetorically that will convince, you know, TERFs or evangelical Christians, you know, that actually trans people are great and actually trans kids are okay. And actually that, that's not our job. We're not here to practice conversion. We're here to learn from the material yes. struggles that we inherit. And that is going to be our path 
forward. That's how we're going to get out of this structural problem where we can critique mm. the New York Times, but we're not actually asking, you know, for, you know, particular, we're not trying to get into the weeds of particular coverage, right? We can critique them on their own terms of standards because they have standards, right? And we can make these pointed critiques, but then there's this larger question about how that relieves us of the burden of being even more engaged on those um, biased terms and like frees us up for this much more interesting, much more galvanizing, much less, I think, wonky work, which is just like, what do we, and I think Vicky, you were, you were, you know, setting this up, B, you were kind of, you know, um, you know, hitting a home run on it. It's like, what do we want when we make these decisions in our lives, right? Like, being trans is really fascinating. It's given me a lot of, you know, insight, anger, mm -hmm. sophistication. It it mm -hmm. drives so much of my understanding of like what I think a, a just world would be, right? And I want to go in that direction with everyone else, right? I want us to build from that basis because I think it's going to be much more effective. I think we're going to find it's much more enjoyable. Like I have to say, right? The reason I'm like saying all of this right now is like, you know, I woke up this morning thinking like, okay, we got to do this. We got to do this <laughs> open letter episode. Here we go again. It's kind of annoying. But then on the other hand, I'm like, wow, I feel so happy right now. I feel so like galvanized and I feel so interested in the, the, the capacity, you know, that we all have to wield collectively when we bring all of our talents and understanding and our inherited histories. And we think about what is so much bigger and better than the story that we've been handed to react to? So like we critically react in part to shed the baggage and the limitations and open our imaginations mm -hmm. and follow our desires and, you know, find that ultimately, yeah, right? Transition is really interesting. It's really interesting in ways that, you know, this terrible media and political landscape we have We'll never even scratch the surface of, let's go there. We have all of that. That belongs to us. That has not been taken away. That frankly can't be taken away. Right. And I think we have a real opportunity in this moment, if we understand what we're going through as a reckoning, to have to figure out how to do it better. But like, we have so many resources. We have abundance. Do you know what our um, opponents mm. and our you know, antagonizers and our attackers do not have abundance. They operate in a scarcity mindset. They are terrified, right? That there's not enough of anything to go around and they would rather scapegoat large swaths of the population in order to, you know, kind of manage that anxiety and avoid the realities of inequity and scarcity and the way that, you know, capitalism orders the world that we live in. Well, we don't have to be limited that way. So I say, let us embrace that. Sometimes that will be gloriously trans. Sometimes that will be gloriously disabled. Sometimes that will be gloriously this and that, but like, let's do that. You know, and I just feel like that, that to me mm. is the, mm -hmm. the good yes. news. That's what I'm excited yes, about. Tools. That's what makes me feel energized. And I just think we have every opportunity now, you know, to really, really, really seize that and um, and understand that as something to actually like be proud of, you know, no, no lie, yes. right? Well, I'm proud that we can yes. do that. Mm -hmm. I'm proud that we are the people who can do this critique and pivot and then have these real conversations. I'm proud that we're capable of embracing desire and want outside of the austerity mindsets that were handed. I'm glad that we think bigger than juridical and legal models. I'm glad that we think bigger than politicians. I'm glad that we think bigger than policy. Like we are the ones that are plugged into real life and all of its richness and returns. And I just think that, you know, nothing 
Um, but flourishing awaits us when we embrace that abundance. So, you know, there you go. I don't know. Am I I a preacher now? I feel like I'm just like, (laughs) 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 I'm sorry. I was just just taking over. (laughs) It was beautiful. It was beautiful. I I literally want to add exactly one thing and then we can, we can go, but that, uh, that, you know, on that list of things you can do is you can transition. It's never too late to stop being straight. If you're listening, you're thinking about it. It's never too late. And we will gladly help you if you need help. all the people are out there. We love when people try. I mean, I will say, right. Like, and then I will stop. I promise too. But like every time (laughs) I I was, I was giving a talk this week at a, at a liberal arts college in New York state. And, you know, I'd just given this, this lecture about abortion and, and trans, you know, and really the, 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 the entwined struggle and really critique the idea that what we need to be doing is fighting for just healthcare. Anyways, in the aftermath, you know, I was talking with folks and there were a lot of cool trans people at that college, but you know, someone came up to me and was like, ah, you know, I'm starting hormones soon. I was just like, you know what? Yes. <laughs> I was like, this is what it's all about. Yeah. Let's transition people. Do you know what you should do when people are trying to take away your right to transition? Transition, right? Not just because That's you're fearful, right. but do it because it's going to be amazing, right? I still, you know, I, I'm, you know, whatever about political optics as conversations, but like shout out to that trans guy, you know, at that like committee hearing um, in Florida who just like did his tea shot with oh, his yeah. two minutes. Like, yes. yeah, hell yeah. Let's yes. be unabashed about it. Let's Let's fucking transition more than we've ever transitioned before. Yes. So fucking beautiful. What a wonderful conversation out of like such terrible <laughs> subject matter. Yeah, I'm, I've got I've got chills from that, Jules. Thank you so much. Thank you both for having me on. It's just been lovely. Thank you. Oh, my gosh. Thank oh, you, thank, Vicky. Thank you so I much, mean, this Vicky. is just like the conversation and you 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 brought so much. And like, I feel like you. Yeah. I, I could I couldn't have gotten where I got without talking with you oh, and, and you too be it just it really I think again it just oh, what a wonderful takeaway I'm like yeah I wish it was so nice. my I, know. I wish it was my shot day so I could go do my estrogen shot <laughs> you could do it on air yeah as a mic drop I know yeah mine was also earlier yeah this week alas <laughs> all right let me do my little outro are you are you still on Twitter right now me no no yeah. long gone okay I went, I went before you. it was cool to leave because I'm like a hipster mm-hmm. even in that. And you then are. I didn't go back when everyone else was like, oh, maybe like I'll come back. I was like, nope, I'm gone. <laughs> That's good, though. It's you really can find good. me exactly nowhere. You yeah, you find... can tell them. Yeah. Um, is there anything you want to plug, though, at the end of the episode for any reason? Um, uh, you know, just, just uh, you know, uh, the book coming out um, and keep an eye out for my byline. I write sometimes. That's all. Yes. Really. Definitely. Mm. You just had a good piece come out in Lux recently, right? In the issue six. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes. So check out Vicky's writing, read her first book, get excited about the second one coming in 2024 from Haymarket. Vicky, thank you so much for joining us. Pleasure as always. Truly. Absolutely wonderful today. Oh my God. Such a such a joy. Such a joy, you two. Thank you so much. And patrons, thank you so much for supporting the show. We couldn't do any of this without you. But if you'd like to help us out a little bit more, share the show with your friends, post about your favorite episodes, order a copy of Health Communism from your local bookstore, or request it from your local library, and follow us at DeathPanel underscore. Patrons, we'll catch you later in the week in the main feed for part two of our series, uh, interviewing organizers about how COVID has impacted their organizing. Absolutely fantastic. And uh, then we'll catch you next Monday in the patron feed. As always... Medicare for all now, solidarity forever, stay alive another week.
Everyone's in foreign wilds, they're afraid. Better shot, yeah.